This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Don Watson and Chris Wallace. Don is an award-winning author and former speechwriter to Paul Keating, and Chris is a political historian, commentator and former member of the Canberra Press Gallery. They both joined me to talk federal politics, including giving us an analysis of the Voice to Parliament referendum outcome as well as talking about Australia's response to the Israel-Palestine conflict and humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Don also takes us through his recent piece for The Monthly on Labor's sudden and now unwavering support of AUKUS. And I'm so excited to be joined by two absolute powerhouses of Australian politics and intellectual life. They are Don Watson, award-winning author and former speechwriter to... Paul Keating, who was Prime Minister of Australia. He has written a range of books, one on that topic, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, a portrait of Paul Keating PM, which sits on my bookshelf. There's also Death Sentence, The Decay of Public Language, which is ever relevant. Then there's also uh, The Bush, which I also have, and Watsonia. He also writes some excellent essays for The Monthly, which we will get to talk about in this conversation. Also, I'm joined by regular guest on this program, Professor Chris Wallace, who is a political historian, commentator on Australian politics and former member of the Canberra Press Gallery. And she has also written a range of books, including her latest, Political Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers, which I believe has been long listed for a Walkley Award. So congratulations to Chris and also How to Win an Election. So we are going to be talking about the Voice to Parliament referendum outcome, which we, of course, are very familiar with as of Saturday night, but, of course, we saw it coming in terms of the polling. And then we're also going to be talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, in particular the Australian federal government's response to it and the world's response, as well as Don Watson's excellent piece in The Monthly, which Chris Wallace and I did reference on this program briefly before And uh, it's a really wonderful piece because it essentially covers something that I've been raging about for months and months and months, years and years and years, which is Australia's submarine woes. The piece that Don wrote in the August edition of The Monthly is called A Modest Proposal for Submarine Money. And I can't wait to chat about that as well. I welcome back onto the show Don Watson, who I last spoke with, I believe, I think it was about February 2018, so it's been a long time. Hi there, Don, and it's great to have you back on the show. Hello, Amy. Thank you. And hi there, Chris. Good morning, Amy and Don. Great to have you both on the show, and I think um, I'm really going to get a lot out of this conversation, and I've been dying to ask you a whole range of questions, but uh, let's just first of all start from the obvious point, which is the outcome of the referendum, which we've seen And clearly the outcome happened very quickly on the night. I was watching the ABC coverage with Anthony Green, as most political people would, and he called it very early on. I think it was about 7.20pm and polls closed in the eastern states at 6. So there were other states like Western Australia still voting when the outcome was announced. And we only saw the ACT, so one territory, actually vote a majority yes to the question, which was, do you want to recognise 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples of this nation and by doing so give them a voice to parliament through an advisory body which would make recommendations to both parliament and executive government, but they wouldn't, of course, have any power to implement those recommendations or ensure that politicians actually acted on them. So that is the outcome. And I wondered first if we'll go to you, Chris, given that you are from the ACT, can you explain to us why it is that the ACT voted yes and no other state or territory did? Yes, happily a resident of the People's Republic of Canberra, uh, <laughs> which also was the only place in Australia to vote majority for a republic at the previous referendum. Um, it's it's pretty straightforward, Amy. The ACT has, the, on average, the highest incomes and highest education levels in Australia. And if you look at the way the vote fell in the referendum this time, the more educated and the wealthier you were, the more likely you were to vote yes. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, there's almost a case for the ACT seceding, I think, because mm. we are so much more uh, social democratic in our mores and our outlook. But, of course, it's easy to do when you can afford to, to you know, make big, generous moves. Not that this was really so generous. This was a really a, a basic minimum requirement, I think, and I only wish the whole campaign had been more effective and Australian politics was less vicious and... It had been a massive yes in line with the ACT result. But meanwhile, we remain an island of, um, how can I put it, generosity in a, in a civic sense. And um, that's a good thing. But, boy, we feel lonely. It must be lonely out there in the ACT. I now know why Canberra is my favourite city. Of course, we heard on the night, and I was watching Cos Samaris on Twitter talking about this in the lead-up, and we also addressed this, Chris, a while back, saying that essentially there is this divide between the kind of inner-city parts, especially, obviously, as we saw on, a, on the referendum night in Sydney, it's very obvious, but even in Melbourne, Adam Bant's seat is the seat that voted yes in the highest numbers. So, you know, Melbourne being very, very progressive, also very young with a lot of university students living in Carlton and Parkville and the CBD. And then there's also, of course, the fact that what he pointed out was, uh, you know, you've got the outer suburbs and the other subsets of metro, not the inner metro. And what he was saying, and I wonder if I can get both of your thoughts on this, is you know, he was saying that there wasn't really a campaign on the yes side that targeted all of those demographics in an equal way that was appealing to everyone that's that explained it clearly. And I think there's a lot of people who might wonder whether enough was done to educate Australians as to what this topic was and whether there needed to be a longer lead time for this referendum. I know that it's been in the pipeline for, you know, 10-plus years as a concept, but in terms of it being a feature in the minds of Australians, at the average Australian, this is a relatively new concept to them. They don't think about these issues on a day-to-day -day basis. Did it need to have a slower burn given that this wasn't a kind of an easy thing and it was not bipartisan. Is, was there a, a fumbling by the Prime Minister in terms of choosing this timing and then, of course, the Yes campaign's approach to the referendum? Chris, I'll go to you and then Don. Well, Cosimaris's tweets, honestly, he, he deserves some kind of 
I don't know, he deserves a Walkley for those tweets. They're incredible. <laughs> um, for those who don't know Cos's background, he, he started off as a Labor official, has now got his own independent polling firm called Redbridge, in which a former Liberal staffer, Tony Barry, is a partner. And uh, they're a feature of ABC News coverage now regularly on, on election nights and, in this case, referendum night. And Cos Samaras has absolutely eviscerated the Yes campaign's competency in a series of knockout tweets saying essentially they talked, the campaign talked to just one group of people, and that is the kind of people who live in Canberra. The campaign did not talk to the bulk of voters who are not like people who live in Canberra. And he's saying, you know, he's really pinning it on the incompetency of the campaign. Now, that wasn't a Labor campaign, Labor Party campaign as such. There was a Yes 23 campaign that had its own uh, makeup. But of course, we all think as voters, the government which was proposing this is, is primarily responsible and there were definitely shortcomings there. People have been urging the Prime Minister, you know, in my case, in print at least since January, but many more people before, before me and before that, to, to come up with a short, sharp, persuasive, memorable encapsulation of what the voice is, to define the issue and own the territory so as not to create a big, diffuse canvas for bad actors, in this case the Peter Dutton-led opposition, amongst others, to project the worst confusion and fears possible onto the minds of the wider electorate. Now, still, right up to, to voting day, the government had not managed that and nor had Yes 23. So, you know, on top of Cosmaris's point, there's just that very basic point of political craft much like, Amy, the franking credits debacle at the 2019 mm. election, if you've got to explain a policy, you've already lost it. It's, it's really, really basic. Now, there are many other elements to this, but I think Coz's point about, about the campaign only talking to affluent, educated people and that basic political craft thing of not encapsulating it at the outset and instead creating room for bad actors to own it and spread fear and confusion to devastating effect... Uh, there's more to it than that, but those two points are absolutely central to what just happened. And, John, I'm really curious to know what your perception of it is. Well, I mean, the, you know, you've got – talk about getting two people from a, a, you know, a tiny pocket of Australian think, thinking. I mean, in the Melbourne, so, you know, everyone – I think there 13% voted against it at my booth. But, I mean, I also think that you could have called the result the day that Peter Dutton – announced that he was going to oppose it. Mm. I think that I know no one wants to take the responsibility or to blame Anthony Albanese for it. I don't blame him for not coming up with a short, sharp sort of policy description that everyone could understand. I think the ultimate failure of Albo was a failure of courage. I mean, I think he thought what was courage was to go on with it when the really courageous thing would have been to say, this is too important to lead you off a cliff. He mm. would have had to confront those people and say, this is not going to work. It's going to get worse and worse as time goes on. And um, Dutton has destroyed it. That's his out. Elbow's out. But I think it really took... It, it, he needed to have said that and think about how you're going to approach it. Because the thing was, it wasn't just that there was no short, sharp description of it. That's always a hard thing to do. 
But I think there was no politics in it at all. You know, politics is about finding ways through of positioning your opponent or bringing your opponent into the camp, trapping them with you. It really didn't have any politics. It was just, this is a righteous cause, we support it. And yes, signs went up all over in Melbourne and no doubt through Canberra. But the rest, it reminded me of what an old Republican said about Madison, Wisconsin. He said, it's 30 square miles surrounded by reality. (laughs) (laughs) And that really is the way, and it's not just, um, it's not just Albanesian, the people around him. And by the way, I think he left, you know, because of certain things that Albanese's done. I think his best advocates were nowhere to be seen. And he's not a good advocate himself, but Bob Hawke couldn't have carried this. No one, no, uh, you just can't carry a referendum if you don't have bipartisan support. And he had to work on ways. He's the politician. He had to find some way of, and it would take time. It couldn't be done this term. I mean, I think he could have called it the night he announced it, actually, but we all put our doubts aside and said, oh, well, it's the euphoria of victory. And if he doesn't get bipartisan support, he'll, um, he'll have to work out another way of going about it. And I think there were ways, although I'm not, you know, I think it just at this stage it'd probably be um, unseemly to try and suggest them, given the disappointment of the people who got the voice up um, just at the moment. But uh, there was something kind of dopey about it from beginning to end. And I, I, I really feel for people who led that campaign in my love and admire for what happened to it, that it was a fiasco. And no one was surprised on Saturday night by the result. No one. Mm. Um, in Victoria, we would have liked to have been the one state that got across the line by half a percent. But even if it had got across by, you know, 50.5 to 49.5 or something, it wouldn't have been a great result. Um, it'd be better than this, but you you would have left disgruntlement out there. I mean, this is not to excuse Dutton's absolutely lousy behaviour. I mean, the other thing I think is, you know, that you might have once thought that we used to think that conservatives at least, you know, did the honourable thing from time to time. I can't help comparing Dutton with John McCain in 2008 when McCain was asked by a couple of poor benighted Minnesotans, not asked, but told that Obama was a an Arab, one woman said, meaning terrorist, and uh, another bloke said he's, uh, he cohorts with uh, with terrorists and so on. And McCain stopped in mid-flow, took the microphone back and said, no, you're wrong. Obama is a decent human being, a good American. I'm going to fight this case on its merits. I'm going to fight the election on its, on its merits, not on this sort of prejudice, which is really what he said, which shot himself in the foot. He knew he was doing it. Because out there, the Tea Party was not yet born, but was beginning to rumble, and six months later, it was full steam ahead. And at any point in that campaign, Dutton might have said, I want to fight the case on its merits. I oppose this, but I'm not going to tolerate racism. And it's not part of the argument, racism, prejudice, misinformation, lies. He could have done some sort of made a few honourable statements. But yes. who expects that on the conservative side of politics? No, we don't expect it much on the other side of politics for that matter. But on the conservative side, it's not conservative anymore. It's kind mm. of, you know, it's a kind of 
really nasty kind of reactionary politics. Trumpian, if you like, although I also think it's also John Howardian, frankly, but um, he set the example long ago of rank opportunism, fear-mongering. He sure Um, did. But people were playing an old interview with him on 7.30 report where he was holding up a printed out picture of a map of Australia saying, you know, this is the land that is going to, you're going to be, have taken from you. And, you know, he he was out there fear-mongering around, you know, native land rights and all kinds of things. Well, he was doing it back in the 1980s and mm. before. I mean, he's always, and I think Howard is a, a very, very powerful influence in Australia, not only on the Liberal Party and its leaders, but I think there are still, I think what we learned on Saturday night is that Come the crunch, come any move to sort of jolt the country forward a little and how its Australians begin to multiply, they replicate. You can sort of hear them. They block all the exits. I, I think that he's, he, he still has this sort of now semi-mythic kind of influence over Australian minds. And we don't really need Trump to encourage people into fits of paranoia and, and selfishness. Howard laid the basis a long while ago. And against that backdrop, it's really interesting to think about whether things might have been different had Josh Frydenberg been opposition leader instead of Peter Dutton. I don't know, maybe he would have been as Howardine as uh, as Dutton, but hard to imagine. They, they're all lickspittles to their leader. I mean, there's something about Libs. I don't know what it is. And I mean, I, by the way, I, I feel rather critical of the Liberal left at the moment too. But, <laughs> but I think um, so few of them put their hands up against. I mean, Simon Birmingham sort of, you know, minced away and Lisa at least got out, got out and Wyatt got out, but I think they're all, they all kowtowed to Howard in the way that they used to kowtow to Menzies, who was relatively a decent man. Indeed. Relatively. Yeah. Except for the 1951 referendum. Well, that was, I mean, if he, if he couldn't if he couldn't get a referendum through on banning the Communist Party in 1951, you know, in the Absolutely, in the depths of the Cold War and fear of Russia and invasion from the north, if you couldn't get that across the line, well, it goes to show that it's pretty hard to get any constitutional change without bipartisan support. Yes, look, Don's making a killer point here. It was foolish to go ahead when there wasn't bipartisanship. Don, your criticism of Albo in terms of lack of strategic thinking, point taken. Uh, It's interesting if you go a bit further back in this term of office, Albo, as far as he does strategic thinking, was thinking strategically about referendums. Uh, it's, it's easily forgotten that he was under some pressure to hasten a, re- a revisiting of the Republic referendum in this term of office. And he very deliberately stiff-armed that in favour of what he thought would be strategically more effective, and that is doing the voice now and then worrying about the Republic in a later term of office. And, you know, the assumption very much in his mind was this would be not hard to do. But, of course, you know, how many times do we have to learn the lesson? How, how many times do prime ministers have to learn to the le- learn the lesson? No referendum has ever been successful in Australia without bipartisan support. And he could have, you know, even after that emotional, that wonderful, uplifting, euphoric, emotional declaration of intention to carry forward on The Voice uh, that Anthony Albanese made on election night. I mean, we all cheered, everybody teared up quite appropriately. He would have had the out if he then backed it in later on when everybody was calmer and more sober and actually looking to execute this. He could have said, right, we've made this commitment, now we've got to get the bipartisan support that could make this a reality, and then dug into those 
arcane parliamentary committees and tried to join people up, trying to shame Dutton into some sort of reasonable position, it might have turned out that it wasn't an achievable thing to get bipartisanship for The Voice this referendum, but maybe they could have got it for recognition in the Constitution, and at least that success could have been notched up and The Voice pursued subsequently, you know, after the realism of the political situation had been worked through. I mean, that's the terrible thing. Both parts of the proposal went on Saturday. You know, constitutional recognition is not there yet either. So it's, uh, I don't know. When he announced it in those weeks went on, you thought, well, he must have some understanding of Dutton we're not privy to at the moment. There's something, he must know something that we don't know, that Dutton is going to support it. Um, well, I think there was... Surely there was... when he doesn't, he will, he will, he will pull back because mm. otherwise it's going to end in tears. Well, I think underpinning that was that Noel Pearson's feeling was that bipartisanship was there in all of the private conversations he was having in the run-up to all of this. You know, he would have that would have been communicated to the government. There was this kind of vague assumption, but a hard-headed practising politician, you know, with a long parliamentary background, would have taken someone like Noel Pearson's sense of the situation and then tried to harden it up into a this is right or not kind of thing by working through the parliament. These are shockingly hard lessons and at enormous cost to the spirit of the country. Everyone's feeling like hell this week, and especially Indigenous Australians and, and everyone who worked so hard to try and make yes happen. But again, failures of good strategic analysis, good crafting of strategy, and also some pretty basic political craft fails, I think, along the lines, as Cosimara said. Well, I think yeah. you have to sort of also recognise that, that, that in a way, I mean, the voice proposal as it stood was always open to anything that anyone wanted to think about it on social media. It was open to Dutton saying it's not clear exactly what it is. And there, there were easy contradictions to make. I mean, you have to start now entering into the easily, easily prejudiced mind, I suppose. But, I mean... In a way, people are going to say, well, they want a voice, but I've seen that back on the TV every night for years, Noah Pearson, and Marcia Langton, they've got a voice. Or they had you know, the older people would say, well, that's it, and it became a talking shop and fell into bad hands and we had to close it down. All those sorts of negative views were easily attached to the campaign for the voice, well, attached to the campaign against it. And I think there's another thing that really... I think the left, if you like, the, the sort of progressive part of Australian politics, ought to also recognise that there were people, I know anyway, and I'm sure there were many, many more, who had worked and continued to work in Aboriginal communities, in remote Aboriginal communities, in Yukala, in Cape York, in Darwin and so on, who didn't vote for the voice, who felt on the basis of what had happened in those places in Aboriginal representative organisations, that it wouldn't work. That people in North East Island Land would say we've had the Northern Land Council, it's done nothing except for what it's done for those few people who run it, and we don't need to mention names. There's an awful lot of magical thinking at that level as well. And the Yes campaign had to take that on and say, look, we know that the failures have been continual and consistent, and this is not a... This is not guaranteed to fix it, but it's worth a go. In other words, it had to be very honest about things, the way people understand Aboriginal Australia. At one point, you have to say, well, look, 
in every state where there's a large Aboriginal population, the vote was heavily against it. Why is that? And it's about perceptions and it's about the experience of... It's about the dehumanising, continuing dehumanising of Aboriginal people because if you keep them poor and shiftless and welfare dependent and so on, you can write them off. In other words, it's an incredibly complex case to make. And I think the, the reason that the voice... And the statement from the heart was expressed in such inspiring, uplifting, poetic terms. It's because getting down to the nitty-gritty on which I think it largely lost, how will it make a difference if it's only advisory? That's a, a complicated thing to do, and in some ways you have to skim over it and say, put your hope in this, put your hope in it. Because you, it's difficult for people to say, well, all right, it's, it's going to advise the government about the difficulties in uh, Aboriginal communities, how is that going to fix things? Because the government is going to decide whether or not it takes that advice. So it had this difficult business of being a a, a panacea and something that probably wasn't entirely convincing, if you know what I mean. It's a hard sell when there are different views across the whole population and so many different experiences of the the issue. Absolutely, and it's not only different views across the population, mm. different views across the Aboriginal population. Mm. I mean, there's an incredible difference between a, a, a gulf as wide as any in Australia between people living in their clans, on their lands in northern Australia, and people of mixed descent living in the cities and the country towns. And, you know, as one young old person said, Oh, yeah, that's what the voice is. In other words, he said, oh, well, that's made more power and money for the Gumach and the, and the other fellows down south, nothing for us. I don't mean that white Australia, non-Indigenous Australia, has to understand these things, but it also, in some ways, the campaign for the voice was always going to be depleted by areas where they did not go, could not go, because it would overcomplicate it. And it was also complicated by the fact that the No campaign was led largely by Aboriginal Australians who were saying, actually, we don't want this, with Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine being such central figures visually um, and vocally, you know, and grabbing all the headlines, saying outrageous things. I mean, they took up all the space and it gave non-Aboriginal people a reason to think, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of people to think, well, they're out there saying they don't want it and it gives them a kind of out to say, well, if they don't want it, I don't need to listen to the other case or I don't need to, I can just kind of keep the status quo, not take a risk, not move outside, which is what a referendum is asking you to do. It's really asking you to progress, to think differently, to move beyond the status quo. But it was to be expected, wasn't it, really, Mm. because it is a sort of pluralist country and the the Aboriginal communities are pluralist too. And Mm. there will be assimilationists among them and there will be people who say, this is too weak, we want a treaty and so on. That was all to be expected. They're the givens of a democratic system. And just as now Sky News and and, uh, social media are givens of the democratic system, so any campaign you run has to take all that into account somehow and find a way through it. I don't think you can blame Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. I think they put the final nail in the coffin. Any hope that it might have had of surviving was not going to survive when they got so much press. But that, you know, any strategy had to take into account that there would be Aboriginal voices against it because there are different ways of seeing their prospects. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is what 
you said, Don, about the fact that as soon as there wasn't bipartisanship, it should have been put on hold. And maybe the processes of government could have continued for Albanese's full term. Let's do a constitutional convention if the Liberals keep asking for it. Let's placate them, do all of the process that brings everyone on the journey so we do try and reach a genuine consensus position. That could have been the job of the first-term Labor government. Well, that's the job of politicians. They're mm. the experts in this. That's when, when, when it's handed to politicians, they're meant to be smart enough to work out the way through. And I think that's where Labor and Albanese fail. I also think that Elbo basically overestimated the love on the night and afterwards. But it was only 33% of the primary vote, for God's sake, and it got in you know, and, 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 and an unnatural landslide in Western Australia, which was never going to vote. That was never going to translate to a yes vote. And I think the electorate was irritable. You know, there was a post-COVID irritability. The whole country had sort of long COVID in one sense or another. Well, there's a big and... thing that hasn't been mentioned so far, and that's the fact that this has all unexpectedly coincided with a massive cost-of-living crunch. Exactly, and, which they uh, knew about. Mm. And there's nothing that is going to make voters angry, annoyed, stressed, out of their mind in some cases, especially in poorer electorates, than a massive yep. monetary policy tightening. So it was a kind of perfect storm in that respect. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. It may be a situation where the states are the place that this has to get carried forward now. Uh, it's, it's really striking when you look at those state-by-state -state results now, South Australia, for example, had a 64.8% no vote. Now, South Australia has the most moderate, historically moderate Liberal Party kind of character of any place in Australia. They're notably moderate Liberals in South Australia, yet nearly two-thirds of South Australians voted no. Now, this is against the backdrop of the State Premier, Peter Malinowskis, embracing the Uluru Statement at the state level South Australia's voice is going ahead as planned in 2024, but without a constitutional amendment. Uh, Victoria and the ACT, of course, already have things in place that are like voice-like while not called the voice. So it may turn out that state by state, in a tessellated way, this happens on the ground in any case, somehow, in some way, and that that super toxic, hyper-partisan Canberra scene is, is just not going to be the place it happens for some time, if ever. We also have seen the Labor MPs, even on Q&A last night, and the Prime Minister and Richard Miles already backtrack from the Uluru Statement to say, hey, let's hold back on treaty, let's hold back on truth-telling. You know, the electorate has given us an, an answer or a message. But, I mean, they were asked a very specific question, which was, do you want to change the Constitution for recognition and a voice. They weren't asked about, does the government want to hold a truth-telling commission and would you listen? I think now there's a, a, a very even severe lack of courage to take any other part of the Uluru Statement forward because it seems that Labor is taking certain lessons or messages, and I'm using air quotes here, from the referendum results, which I wonder you know, whether you think are valid lessons or messages to take out of it. Well, I, I think, I think it's, there's something vaguely pathetic about this now, that this is what it was their job to see in the first place. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's, it's kind of pathetic to now be saying, oh, well, the people have spoken. And they knew what the people were going to say, unless they were really stupid. Um, months ago, that's where they needed to show some fortitude and some creativity, and they failed miserably. They failed to do their, 
their job as politician, as a government, as a as a leader in the case of Elbo. I just think it was a and now to be saying, Oh no, well the people have spoken, I, I think is well, come on. Is that how you play politics? You wait until you get the slap in your face that you know you're gonna get and you take every everyone else with you gets the slap as well. It wasn't gonna be a happy thing to say, no, we're gonna do it a different way because you know, you've got to stare down Noel and Marcia and Pat and all the rest of them, all of whom deserve better, and they will give you a hell of a shellacking. And there'll be people who will always say thereafter, oh, they could have won and Albanese squibbed it. But whatever they say about Albanese was nowhere near as bad as what was said to Aboriginal people, particularly Aboriginal children, on Saturday night. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the thing, that the consequences are being really born or the the brunt of them by Aboriginal people. And that's why I was interested about some of the responses to Albanese's speech on Saturday night, which was commentators in The Australian were writing how great the speech was and that probably gives you a sign as to whether the speech was any good because Sally Scales, who had appeared on Q&A just a week ago, is an Aboriginal woman, she had tweeted, this was a devastating result that keeps our people in the status quo. It is bleak. The PM was insulting and pathetic. How dare he? A cop out. Albanese and the ALP will not accept the lies that we put up with. We have been rejected by the Australian people. Reconciliation is dead. No, That's go ahead. exactly it. It's rejection. It's rejection. Yeah. I mean, it's not It's not disappointment. It's disappointment no. on, you know, for, for Elbow, if you like. But this was the risk you ran, that you were going to put this thing up and white Australia, or non-Indigenous Australia, were going to reject Aboriginal Australia. That's a that's a, a horrible thing, a catastrophic thing, it seems to me. And they, but they were the stakes. I just think it's 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 incredible that a, that a, a allegedly competent government let this happen. Well, I think there's there's the point, though, isn't it? Allegedly competent, and, mm. and that's the big. You know, this is this is kind of mild, you know, wild understatement. Pop the balloon of the idea of government competency, yeah. and you saw yeah. that in Parliament yesterday. The opposition absolutely going for the Prime Minister's throat as incompetent and a wastrel. You know, spending nearly half a billion dollars on a referendum that failed, and you know, Don Don and I have seen this a million times. They come up with a slug line, they repeat it endlessly, and destruction ensues. I mean, this is a moment of chilling reality that's just entered the government. Just how capable is the government? Are these opposition accusations completely baseless or is there a serious competency issue that somehow has to be addressed? In the end, I mean, it it was made for Dutton. I mean, if, if you have Dutton down in the dungeons of unpopularity, this was a lifeline. Why was he going to say... Oh yes, well that's a, that's a lovely idea, It'll, you know, and I'll, I'll join in there. When we know what Dutton's like, we know what conservative politics is like. Now it was a lifeline to drag him out of the dungeon, get him back into the culture wars where he thrives. And in the end, when Dutton's saying, "This has divided the country," it's a truism, but it's mm. powerful. <laughs> it's a powerful truism because, in the end, things boil down to truisms in political campaigns. But he was able to say, you've divided the country because the country was divided, thanks to Dutton, but also <laughs> thanks to Albanese, who put it in that position. So, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know whether it's sunk in yet, just 
what it says about uh, the character of the government, the character of its leader, and the competence of both. Yeah. I just want to, you know, bring in a thought here as well, because we've seen this come up before. This isn't the first time that a controversial proposal or a proposal that may divide people has come forward. We've seen, and I definitely don't want to equate these issues, but just as a comparison point, the negative gearing issue, the franking credits issues, things that tend to be weaponized to make people think of their self-interest, to try and polarise people and make them scared and to use fear, and it's a a very easy tool to use in those particular issues. And so Labor's already had all this experience with proposals that would divide the country. So that's why I'm even more kind of staggered that they then had all that experience in the past and haven't learned from it. Is there a reason why they're not learning? Well, I think I could sum up Don's earlier comments on that with the word hubris. I mean, I think it's fair to say, Don, you think there's an hubristic character to the Prime Minister and, you know, to an extent the government as a result that led to this miscalculation. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I think think it was a rush of... uh, Well, it's it's hubris. I think it's also a lack of um, of actual courage, really. But I think most of all with with Labor, it's... It's been a long, long while since Labor had sort of stood for something coherent. When Bill Shorten went to the electorate with that long list of of, um, progressive policies, progressive taxation, all that looked terrific, except it was just a bag full of things (laughs) Mm. rather than... They seem to have a, a kind of constitutional inability or distaste for the idea of a sort of of a manifesto, of a sort of social democratic manifesto. Not that this is where we're going to end up, but this is the aspiration. This is where Labor will take you. And we'll be smart. You know, it doesn't mean abandoning politics to have this kind of manifesto, but somewhere out there, I know it's a horrible word, narrative or story or whatever, but somewhere out there, the narrative that they abandoned in the 1990s and gave power to free go for 10 years, they need to find another one. That one won't work anymore. But they've got to do some thinking about what they stand for. If you want to get the voice up, there are two things I reckon you have to do. One is you have to bring the same sort of imagination and 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 devotion and poetry and intellectual effort that those people brought to the statement from the heart. You have to bring that in, in the non-Indigenous world of Australia, in other words, the Labor Party. And the other thing you have to do is stick to it. You you have to keep working at it. You have to keep saying that this is where we want to go so that people understand that, Labor people understand that that is what Labor stands for. Yeah. No, hit the nail on the head. I don't think I know what Labor stands for at the moment because now everyone is easily making the claim or criticism that they are, you know, the liberal light version because they've taken on so many coalition policies it is hard to distinguish them. You can distinguish them on tone and on some key areas, but there's a lot of overlap now between the two major parties. We'll close out this part of the conversation because I want to get on to the other two parts so we've got enough time for AUKUS and Israel-Palestine. But is there any other final comments that you both want to say about The Voice before we wrap it up on that point? I'd just say it's a you know obviously a complete tragedy uh, and so much of it is as a result of professional politicians not being good enough at their craft, 
and how many times does this lesson need to be learned, you know? Have the capability to do something, do it carefully, execute it effectively, or don't do it. So much hard learning in this that shouldn't have to be relearned again. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that has happened actually goes back to Labor governments, in the, the Labor governments of Hawke and Keating, that, that the sort of deregulatory environment they, environment they set up, the sort of devolution of power that had belonged in the public service to corporate Australia and so on, all those measures which freed up the economy and got us thinking differently about a lot of things have in a way been destructive of the commons of a sort of notion of a collectivity which used to earn labour about 46% of the primary vote and that often wasn't enough to get across the line. So those things have changed dramatically now where Labor wins with 33% of the vote. But that surely requires a much less tribal view of the way you do politics on the progressive side of the ledger. You're going to have to be more creative in the way you think and do things, in the way that Gillard showed some ability at a while back. The best way to get a voice up from the non-Indigenous side of things is to do something similar on the non-Indigenous side. In other words, make it part of a general ambition to make this a functioning pluralist democracy in which fairness is, again, the watchword. Mm. I think that's actually the best thing Labor can do, but it shows little sign of doing it. No, there's no consistency. You just have to look at JobSeeker as an example of that. I'm speaking with Don Watson and Chris Wallace, and we are talking federal politics, including the voice through parliament referendum outcome. We're now going to just hear a one-minute clip from Gaza from a doctor who's working for Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders. That doctor is a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, Dr Ghassan Abu Sita, who is currently at Al-Sharif Hospital in northern Gaza. And I just wanted to play this before we hear from Chris, who's going to talk to us about Australia's response to the conflict over in Palestine at the moment. So we're just going to hear that brief clip and then we'll be back after this. It's absolutely horrendous. The bodies are stacked up. People are too afraid to bury their dead. I had to evacuate Lauda Hospital yesterday when the Israeli army warned that it was going to target the hospital and the hospital had two hours to evacuate. We made sure that the patients were in ambulances and then we left. When you drive by one of the targeted buildings, there's the stench of decaying bodies. They no longer are able to take the bodies out from underneath the rubble. We drove past um, the Indonesian hospital and as you pass by the morgue, there are piles of bodies just wrapped in shrouds and put against the corner because the the morgue is overflowing. And the same in the morgue here at uh, Shifa Hospital. Pending public health catastrophe at Shifa Hospital, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who have flocked to the hospital. They're sleeping in the grounds, they're sleeping on the corridors between the patient beds in the wards. People are absolutely terrified. And so they think this is the safest place. One of our plastic surgery colleagues, a lovely man whom I'd worked with since the 2009 war, just went to escort his sister to his house where 30 of his family members had stayed. He decided to stay with them overnight and at one o'clock he was killed with all of his family. We just heard there 
some harrowing information the reality of the situation over in Gaza at the moment. And obviously there is a lot of criticism about the Western response to this situation because really the US has responded quite predictably in support of Israel and it's not about taking sides. Of course, what Hamas has done is completely terrible and that no civilian should ever be targeted, killed, kidnapped, anything like that. But now we're in a situation where um, Gaza is under siege because of this situation and the civilians on the other side who have been in, in an ongoing occupation for decades and decades. So um, I'm interested, Chris Wallace, in your opinion on this, because we've now seen the Australian government try and evolve their position a little bit from when Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, initially put out a statement saying the unprovoked attacks from militant Hamas on Israel are abhorrent. He says Australia calls for these attacks to end and recognise Israel's right to defend itself. So we went from that position to seeing Canberra and the Sydney Opera House lit up in Israel flags. We've seen protests happen in support of Palestinians that have been trying to be shut down. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise. And now we've seen, I guess, the Prime Minister come out and say, well, we do want to see Israel play by the rules of war. We've been told very clearly by aid organisations that they are not by ordering people in Gaza to evacuate unrealistically. Doctors Without Borders and Norwegian Refugee Council say that that's a potential war crime. So there is a lot of things going on here. How does the federal government in Australia manage this, Chris, and are they managing it appropriately? With great difficulty, Amy. Uh, this is kind of a complete hellscape of an issue. Uh, and behind it, you know, when we talk about Israel and Gaza, obviously war crimes should not be met with more war crimes. You know, that is not the answer. Uh, and, again, not learning lessons from history, when we think back to the horror of September 11 and the success with which the United States was baited uh, by al-Qaeda into, you know, a conflagration that then went for, what, a very long time, uh, you'd have to say Israel's response to the horrific assault last weekend, or the previous weekend, uh, you know, the rage is understandable, the the concrete response not excusable. Um, and I give credit to US President Joe Biden for very early on urging Israel to observe the rules of war. Now, that looks like that's just gone to the pack. Uh, the thing about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is he is basically operating in the belief that the US will stand behind Israel whatever it does. Now, that's his working assumption, and, and that assumption is underpinning his freedom of action to do whatever he likes in Gaza, uh, including humanitarian crimes of, it seems, vast order. Um, that's about to be tested. Is the US going to stand behind Netanyahu whatever he authorises the Israeli armed forces to do? You know, this is a, an open question. Most people would automatically say, yes, the US will continue to stand behind Israel whatever happens now in Gaza. Uh, but behind this, of course, behind Hamas in Gaza is Iran. And, uh, of course, it's the, the major power confrontation here between the US and Iran, which is, is just underpinning everything that, that's happening. Chillingly, while we've been on air, 
uh, Iran's top envoy has said that preemptive action could be expected in the coming hours. You know, he said this on state TV in Iran, which is completely chilling uh, to everybody around the world who's watching this horror unfold and contemplating the further horror of it escalating into a region-wide conflict that involves Iran. If that happens, the US will move and, you know, it's it's terrible to, to contemplate this, but the possibility that this could become an out-of-control situation in Gaza that becomes a region-wide and possibly even bigger conflict, you know, it's it's absolutely chilling. Mm. Well, I mean, Chris, it's... Can you, can you explain what Hamas's, Hamas's logic was in conducting that raid? Is it, it's, it's, there's a sort of nihilism about it, but it is, is it actually, I mean, you can say it's out of desperation, but it's also, it's a calculated move and it shows chaos and real terror, as you say. I mean, world terror and specific Gazan terror. And, and they must have known that so long as Netanyahu was there, this is like a golden opportunity in a way without sort of diminishing the reality of things, but that he would respond viciously. Any country would, I think. What is the logic of Hamas in this, or is it an Iranian logic, as you suggest? Chris? There's a very asymmetric situation here. I mean, as David Cameron has observed of Gaza, it's, it's in effect been made an open-air prison uh, by the Israeli government. Hmm. And when you look at what's going on on the West Bank with Israeli settlers... Hmm taking land that under international law should not be taken. And this, you know, beginning as a trickle, building, becoming a wave, more and more... Systematic now. Exactly. So, you know, you're seeing one side not observing international law. You see the other side kettled up in this tiny bit of land, uh, as David Cameron described it, like an open-air prison. What else is Hamas going to do? It's it's a guerrilla warfare operation. It's it's going to provoke until it, as Al Qaeda did with the S11 attacks, uh, until it gets a response. And if it gets a massive response, and Israel loses international sympathy as a result, then Hamas's own position, well, the Gaza position at, at least, gets some sort of moral upping uh, as the Israeli government destroys sympathy for the Israeli project. Now. You know, the terrible, terrible thing in all of this is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself recently up on corruption charges, uh, his government in coalition with some very, very far-right minor religious parties, he's busy trying to undo democracy in Israel. He's been threatening the independence of the Israeli court system. There have been months and months of active protests on the streets. If you're Hamas sitting in Gaza watching all this happening, you're going to think, the time is right. And, you know, the the exact nature of Hamas's relationship with Iran and the extent to which Iran might have sparked or encouraged this action, who knows? Uh, people sitting in intelligence agencies around the world know. You can only think that Hamas had that al-Qaeda mentality when it did this, and it's getting the desired result. It's getting a massive uh, Israeli biting of the hook that in the extremity of, of Israel's actions in response to Hamas atrocities is just going to eliminate what's left of the high moral ground underpinning international support for Israel. I expect that's the thesis. Yeah, and then also yeah, the Haaretz newspaper in Israel 
they're reflecting the pressure on Netanyahu's leadership right now by running editorials, lead editorials, saying Netanyahu bears responsibility for this Israel-Gaza war and the Hamas attack. They're essentially showing that there's huge pressure on his leadership now, even more so than before. And I think he's actually essentially fighting for his leadership right now by doing this. Exactly. The whole idea of this impregnable uh, Israeli military has been completely smashed by what happened the weekend before last. Uh, Anyone who reads the conversation, don't miss Avna Cohen's fantastic column uh, in the conversation today. He's a professor of non-proliferation studies at the Middlebury Institute, and he actually outlines the massive rage within Israel right now mm-hmm. against Netanyahu and and basically suggests that, they, you know, once the immediate military action's out of the way, Netanyahu is in big trouble. But the thing is, how do you get that change in the democratic Israeli system uh, when the votes have been not for the opposition but for the right-wing side of politics? Absolutely. And you know what? It has implications for Australia, Chris, because if America ends up coming into a conflict, Australia always feels the need to jump on board. And that brings us to Don's piece in the monthly in August, which is about the AUKUS alliance and also, of course, part of that alliance being the submarines deal that Australia did under the Scott Morrison coalition government with the US and the UK. But As, Don, you point out in this piece, essentially Labor signed up expecting criticism, expecting this might damage their potential chances at winning the next election, which we know now they've obviously won. But you say, you know, they had 24 hours or even less, maybe eight or 10 thinking hours to come up with a response to this when they found out about it. And, um, and, you know, you say that there was trusted experts like Hugh White, Peter Varghese, and, of course, um, Alan Gingell, who's since passed away, who were not really on board with AUKUS, who had their own reservations and who Labor could have drawn on or drawn from in their response to this. And they could have even done that when they got into government. As I had discussed with Kishore Mababani, who's a, a Singaporean diplomat, who had said, you know, Labor could have put this to a Senate inquiry, properly examined AUKUS and its implications once in government, and then used that as a way to backtrack out of this. But now we are pretty much stuck in bed even further with America to the point where it seems our military is basically their military in many ways. And we are sharing rotations and having base rotations in Australia and all kinds of things. So I wonder, could you take us through your thoughts that are outlined in this piece in the monthly? Well, I thought I thought it was, um, I mean, I suppose it's made things clearer at least about where we stand. But the 24 hours thing was, I mean, that was Albanese himself who said he thought about it for 24 hours mm. and decided to full steam ahead. Well, you can understand why, you know, in real politics, he thinks I'm not going to be wedged on this in an election. But again, you think, well, he must have a reserve strategy, you think, you know, that somebody there, well, I'll get through the election and then we'll have a look at AUKUS. Mm, um, that's what I thought. But no, <laughs> but no, but you know, it's, it's a bit like, it's a bit like the voice. The, there just wasn't another strategy. There wasn't a, a plan B or, or some option in reserve. Well, maybe within think tanks, these things seem to make sense, but I can't imagine how this can make sense to anybody, what's going on. For a start, it sort of turns on its head all the effort to sort of um, you know, become, as we used to say, part of Asia. 
be in Asia. Instead, we recreate the Anglosphere in sort of spectacular terms. It seems to me, I'm no expert on foreign policy by any means at all, but it seems to me that it, it doesn't give us a reputation as a good and honourable citizen in Asia. It leaves us looking like, well, we're still basically post-colonial and we're still really only comfortable when we're dealing with a great and powerful friend like the United States or Britain. There's all that. And then there's the weird thing about the submarines, which how that makes sense to anybody, I do not know. We obviously live in a different world to these boffins, but having a bunch of submarines arriving sometime in the 2040s, seven of them, it doesn't seem like it's going to make a hell of a difference to our security in the next 20 years or more. And then there's the money, you know, you think wander into the expenditure expenditure review committee and say, oh, look, I'd like $380 billion, which may well grow to $1 trillion, things being what they are, and see how you go. Go into the EIC and say that you'd like another you know, half a billion for the arts and see how you go. Mm. <laughs> or for education. I mean, it, it just seems... it's not. I don't think it's to be naive about our position in the world and the threat to our security to say this on the face of things doesn't seem to be likely to do us much good. I mean, one of the things that well, Brian Tui was saying was that most of these submarines, there's only ever about a third of them on actually on active service at any one time. The rest are being serviced and repaired. So when we've actually got seven nuclear submarines, and by the way, that's another problem. No constituency in Australia has ever agreed to take any radioactive waste. These submarines produce a lot of it, apparently. When we've got eight of them, we'll only have two and a half actually working most of the time. And it's hard to see a serious um, threat to our security being discouraged by the presence of two and a half submarines. Three, let's yeah. say three. Yes, you're being generous <laughs> with that estimation. It does use weapons-grade uranium, the US model, as opposed to the French model, which doesn't. It uses lower-grade uranium. It's not disposed in the same way. I wanted to pick up on the point that you were just making there because you say in your piece that making first degrees at university free would cost around $4.3 billion over the first 10 years. TAFE courses, much less than that. $4.3 billion compared to the AUKUS submarine amount, which is at the moment $368 billion. I mean, if you ever needed a clearer argument, there isn't really one. I think it's just so obvious how ridiculous it looks now. But it also means that we're now even more, as I said, embedded with the US. It's something that Paul Keating has come out against very strongly, and I've agreed with everything he's said, even the more controversial things that people don't apparently agree with. One thing he did say, and I'm curious um, to know your thoughts, both of you, is that Keating says really that those boffins you mentioned, Don, they're now really like hawks, that, that what used to be foreign policy now by public servants, they've been taken over by, you know, hawks, um, pro-American hawks in the foreign policy space, people from Aspie and that kind of set, but also that they've really been taken over as well by the spooks, as Paul Keating says, you know, ASIO, ASIS. There's now this kind of meshing 
of departments so that intelligence and foreign policy is all conflated into the one thing. And we're now in this, you know, hyper paranoid state where we're kind of so all the way with LBJ, it's just painful. And I wondered if you had an observation given, you know, that both of you have been observing politics for such a long time, whether you would side with that view of that Paul Keating's put forward about the way that politics and policy is done in this space has changed and also that's enabled a different set of people to take over the debate and to take over, I guess, power of the decision-making? Well, the foreign policy people that, you know, we have many good ones that still have voices, but they haven't been listened to in this debate at all. I mean, these people have come out of the woodwork. I mean, Chris may be aware of the people behind it. I know one name, I think, and that's about it. But, the, you know, the think tanks and the, well, they're gathered, you know, like woodlice and the think tanks and they have a world, they live in a world of their own. But again, it's up to governments to assess this, you know, and make decisions for the country and make them as transparent as it's possible. And this just hasn't happened. We knocked the French over. Morrison knocked them over, and, and really, you now think, well, for all their protests at the time, that an Albanese Labor government would have done exactly the same thing, because they're getting advice somewhere that tells them that this is the way they must proceed. There's a weird thing about the American alliance. I mean, I'm actually not anti-American at all, but I, I can't. It, it makes no sense to go blindly hand in hand with them at this point. It just means that our word is, doesn't count for much. I mean, what possible leverage would, would, would we have in anything when it's just known that we're a lickspittle of the Americans? Mm. I mean, you hear this stuff about how oh they listen to us in Washington, they listen to us. You know, that we've got we've got their ear. It comes from the Labor side too. We've got their ear, and you think well. They may be listening to us, but they're not taking any notice. I mean, because American has not gone well since Vietnam. In the last 20 years, have been a total catastrophe. So if they're listening to us, it's not to take any notice of us at all, or we're giving them very bad advice. Washington sort of has always charmed the boots off Australian politicians, Labor and Liberal, um, particularly that Sydney right-wing mob. Paul's the exception in it, but they all... They're all mad about the US. They're always, when I was there, they were always quoting Sherman or Grant <laughs> at Gettysburg or something. You know, not all of them, just some of them, and they were usually from the New South Wales right. Yeah, they are. They're all they're all kind of civil war freaks. Yeah. Look, the truth, the fact is, there's there's a few layers to this. The first thing is, you know, coming back to John Howard, the 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 root of so much of of what's going on today. When he was elected in 96, the first thing he did was knackered the independence of the Australian Public Service. And, you know, in the last, what, 26 years, the coalition's governed for 20 of them. In that time, they've completely hollowed out and semi-privatised the once proud, formidable APS. Second thing is September 11 happened. That was the moment that the systematic securitisation of Australian policy happened securitisation in the sense that every single policy issue pretty much came to be viewed uh, through the Howard government post S11 and forward as primarily an issue of security, national security first, 
everything else sick and, and daylight in between those two things. And attendant on that was an incredible diversion of, of resources to the military, away from diplomacy, uh, that's been extremely counterproductive. So they're the long-term factors. The third thing is uh, the government gets elected, right? We have new ministers, Labor ministers, some of them, for example, notably and admirably, Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, has, since he took the Treasury portfolio, you can just see him working quietly and systematically across all the agencies and key appointments in the Treasury portfolio and systematically upgrading their quality and their independence. In contrast, Richard Miles, who I like very much as a person, uh, in defence, has not done that. He's pretty much left in place the old Howard uh, continuation that went through all the subsequent ministers, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. You can just see the whole system stacked uh, on the security side, which is, you know, the, the intelligence side, intelligence and security and defence side, systematically with people who think like the coalition. So you see one senior minister clearing out and upgrading the key advisers. You see another key cabinet minister leaving the whole old Morrison gang in place. Now, who's getting the better advice? Who's getting better results? I would say it's not Richard Miles. So, you know, th there's so much to be done long and short term on this stuff. Uh, and this is where we get back to, to, to competency of government. Um, AUKUS, you know, ridiculous thinking about it for 24 hours and signing up for it. Of course, you let it through to the keeper in opposition. When you get into government, you do what Labor's done so well in the past. You know, put together an expert group, analyse it, come up with a green paper. You know, mm. do we need subs? If we do, what kind of subs do we need, nuclear or not? If we need nuclear subs, who do we get it from and how do we finance it? But no, none of that. Um, the only saving grace in this situation is behind the scenes, people are increasingly casting profound doubt on whether AUKUS will ever happen. Uh, on the British side, because they are simply hopeless, you know, Britain's a failing state, they'd be hard-pressed to build a stapler at the minute and produce an effectively stapled couple of A4 bits of paper. Um, and on the American side, there's immense resistance in Congress to uh, sharing what a scarce US military resources. You know, they're struggling to come up with enough subs for themselves for themselves. So behind the scenes, people are thinking that in reality, AUKUS may just add up to a couple of, at best, secondhand US subs and that'll be it. I... Meantime, the job of rebuilding the APS and, and clearing out the old Morrison yeah. gang from the key security, uh, intelligence and defence positions, you know, that's outstanding work mm, and mm. needs to be done. Urgent work. Yeah. I have heard in some circles that people think AUKUS is too big to fail, which is a worrying kind of way of seeing the world. So let's hope that's not the case. I suspect um, in the end it's going to be a Morrison fantasy that just fades into black. Collapses from within. Indeed. Thank you both, Don Watson and Chris Wallace. It's been Absolutely wonderful hearing your very insightful views on the Voice to Parliament referendum outcome, uh, Israel-Palestine and AUKUS. I'm really grateful to you both for your time and your analysis today, and um, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. Thanks, Amy. I've just been speaking with Chris Wallace and Don Watson, both, as you can tell, very insightful analysts in federal politics and authors in their own right, and we've just been talking federal politics. 
I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.